Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello and welcome to a new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your host, Sher Ali Tareen. For each new episode, we choose an important new book in the field of Islamic studies and we chat with its author. The idea of jihad is among the most keenly discussed, yet one of the least understood concepts in Islam. In her brilliant new book, Body of Victim, Body of Warrior, Refugee Families and the Making of Kashmiri Jihadists, Kabiri Robinson Associate Professor of International Studies and South Asian Studies at the University of Washington, engages the question of what might an anthropology of jihad look like. By shifting the focus from theological and doctrinal discussions on the normative understandings and boundaries of jihad in Islam, Robinson instead asks the question of how people live with perennial violence in their midst. The focus of this book is on the jihadists of the Kashmir region in the disputed borderlands between India and Pakistan, especially in relation to their experiences as refugees, muhajirs. By combining a riveting ethnography with meticulous historical analysis, Robinson documents the complex ways in which Kashmiri men and women navigate the interaction of violence, politics and migration. Through a careful reading of Kashmiri jihadist discourses on human rights, the family, and martyrdom, Robinson convincingly shows that the very categories of warrior, victim, and refugee are always fluid and subject to considerable tension and contestation. In our conversation, we talked about the relationship between the categories of jihad and hijra, as imagined by Kashmiri jihadists, the ethical and methodological dilemmas of an ethnographer of jihad, the mobilization of the human rights discourse by Kashmiri militant groups to legitimate violence, and the intersections of family, sexuality, and martyrdom. All students and scholars of Islam, South Asia, and modern politics must read this fascinating book that was also recently awarded the Bernard Cohn Book Prize for Best First Book in South Asian Studies by the Association for Asian Studies. Here now is my conversation with Professor Kabiri Robinson. Hello, Kabiri. How are you doing? I'm very fine today. How are you? Very good, uh, Kabiri. Thank you so much for your time and for this excellent book. As I was uh, saying before we went on air, uh, such an exciting and thrilling book. I really thoroughly enjoyed it and learned so much from it. Uh, It's such a rich ethnography uh, with a very complicated history and uh, the way in which you bring together the narrative and the ethnography together. It was such an exciting read. And uh, congratulations uh, on uh, receiving the award, the Bernard Cohn Book Award for the best first book in South Asian Studies uh, So congratulations on that, and thank you so much for your time, and look forward to this conversation. Yes, and thank you so much for the invitation to speak with you today. I'm also very excited to uh, discuss this book with you, so I appreciate it very much. So the first question, Kabiri, on new books in Islamic studies is always biographical, uh, and the question is, uh, could you tell us a bit about the story of your becoming a scholar, uh, interested in uh, Islam and Muslim societies, uh, uh, what is the uh, story of the journey behind this project uh, and your development as a scholar and uh, how you came to write this particular project? 
Yeah. So I really started out as a South Asianist. Um, as an undergrad, I started the study of South Asia in general um, and also Hindi language, actually. Um, I was actually trained at a program which, like many programs at the time, while they claimed to be South Asia studies programs, were really very much Indian studies programs. And so I, um, as an undergraduate, I spent a little bit of time in India and, and was very in- interested about in, in kind of contemporary India, uh, Indian religions, particularly uh, Hindu devotional traditions. And I, I had the good luck to have a wonderful mentor and teacher who convinced me to go to Pakistan on a language program, the Berkeley Urdu language program. And she said to me, I'll, I'll never forget the advice she gave. She said, far too many scholars um, who say they're interested in South Asia um, really know mostly about India. And this is a wonderful opportunity for you to think beyond the borders of the post-colonial state. So sh- I went off for a year to Pakistan and it was really my, that was really my first very serious introduction to thinking about what a South Asian um, Muslim society looked like. And when I went to graduate school, I was I was interested in some of the same questions that I had been as an undergrad about devotional traditions, but I had become very interested in devotional traditions in Muslim South Asia, particularly in Pakistan. Because of my language training, um, I was able, prepared to um, answer a call for um, uh, Urdu translators that the International Committee of the Red Cross put out in 1994. They were beginning a mission in Indian-administered Jammu and Kashmir to look at the humanitarian uh, conditions of people who were detained in relation to the armed conflict that was going on in the valley at that time. And uh, it was something that I felt that I needed to do. I had the language training and I was at a point in my life where I could take such a position. And so I went to Kashmir and I spent over a year going into prisons, uh, working with people who were detained in relation to that conflict, young men who primarily who were detained in relation to that conflict. And over the course of the over a thousand interviews um, that I facilitated for ICRC investigators, um, I became more and more convinced that the dominant, uh, both popular but historical as well as scholarly uh, materials that were available on on the Kashmir conflict were really missing a really important part of that story. And that story was um, how and why over time are people willing to die but also uh, to kill for um, a a set of political beliefs. Um, So much of the literature that was available at the time was focused on questions of the legitimacy or not of the accession of Kashmir to to India um, in 1947, uh, questions about under what conditions the division between India and Pakistan had taken place. Um, And a lot of the the stories actually rehearsed that as if the debates were the same in the 1990s or the 2000s as they had been in the early 19 or the mid 1940s at the time of the partition. Um, Other, another dominant strain in the scholarship looked at uh, debates that had happened at the UN level, so we're talking kind of like big international law questions or kind of big politics, that is the politics of the relationship between Srinagar and Jammu and um, and Delhi or to a much smaller strain, the politics of the relationship between Muzaffarabad, the capital of Azad, Jammu and Kashmir and Pakistan and Islamabad. And I was really interested in the question of um, the people who uh, were uh, caught up in this struggle but who also 
increasingly uh, were the ones who were actually doing the fighting. And from my understanding, having worked in these in, in these prisons, actually in many ways, um, driving the conflict. So for me, uh, the motivation towards thinking about um, Islam, political forms of Islam, the relationship between Islam and political movements including armed conflict, really came from a grounded ethnographic experience um, that I felt that an anthropologist would have something to contribute to really understanding that that, uh, problem. Um, I did my dissertation research primarily on the Pakistan side of the line of control in an area that uh, constitutionally calls itself Azad Jammu and Kashmir or Free Jammu and Kashmir. Um, And I was working with uh, refugees, people who had been displaced in relation to that conflict, and also people who became uh, involved in actually fighting the conflict, uh, sometimes crossing the line of control in order to do so. People who called themselves um, militants or mujahids called the conflict that they were fighting in a jihad, the Kashmir jihad. And it was over the course of writing about... um, that conflict and how people thought about it and how that actually changed their social relations and changed the nature of the conflict, that I started realizing that I couldn't just talk about South Asia or I couldn't just talk about Kashmir because to do so, I felt, was really participating in a strain in academic writing about Muslim societies and about about Islam that I felt really uh, misrepresented what was actually happening on the ground. And I'm referring here to the problem or the the kinds of writing that adhere to a kind of theory of Muslim exceptionalism, uh, which proposes in some ways that Muslim societies and particularly political movements or social movements in Muslim societies have to be explained by different kinds of academic language or different kinds of theories than in non-Muslim societies, in part because of the idea that Islam has been historically exceptionally resistant to modernization or to the kinds of integration that happened on a global level during the the period of kind of global uh, colonialism. And uh, I felt what, what by through the analysis of the ethnographic work that I had done, um, that it was actually really only possible to understand what was happening if we took people's position uh, within a global political and cultural system. Uh, it was only possible to understand their motivations, their activities, and the kinds of their, their, their subjectivities within that global system. And therefore, that writing in any way as if the situation in Kashmir was not connected to other other uh, comparable situations in other parts of the world, both Muslim and non-Muslim, would actually be uh, a failure to engage with that question of what it, what is it, what is a modern political movement, including a violent movement in a Muslim society, come from? Uh, how is it formed? How can we address it? Um, a substream of that, a substream of this kind of failure to engage the kind of core discursive um, assumptions of the Muslim exceptionalism theory was actually something that I also saw in regional or area studies, which is um, a, at the time, I think this has greatly changed at this point. I think my book is one of many books that are now taking this head on. But at the time, um, you know, it was very hard for somebody writing from outside of the Middle East to take on the question of what is Islam. You could talk about a particular Muslim community, but to talk about what they were doing as 
Islam, if it diverged from, say, the dominant doctrinal um, kind of uh, claims about Islam that were coming out of the Middle East, was extremely difficult to do. And so you had this incredibly vibrant work on Muslim communities in, for example, Southeast Asia that claimed what they were talking about was Southeast Asian studies as opposed to a a global Islamic movement or um, people embedded in uh, questions having to do with Islam on a global scale. So I felt that actually engaging questions of comparative movements and comparative um, Muslim societies would actually be very, very important in order to understand how um, Kashmiri Muslims South Asian Muslims are both embedded in those specific South Asian histories, but also embedded in global histories, some of which are Islamic global histories and some of which are um, global histories that have to do with the kind of the rise of of modern as well as postmodern worldviews. So I was wondering if we could uh, begin to uh, reflect on the central conceptual concerns and objectives of this book by reflecting a bit on the title of the book, which is Body of Victim, Body of Warrior, Refugee Families and the Making of Kashmiri Jihadists. Uh, so what are you getting at with this title of Body of Victim and Body of Warrior, and how does it relate to the context uh, that uh, frames your project and the larger conceptual goals and objectives that you have set out to achieve? Yeah. So the title actually is meant to signal three levels of the argument and analysis in this book. And I'll just kind of state you uh, state them for you and then say a little bit more um, uh, about them. So the first uh, signal of, of the, the title, Body of Victim of Body of Warrior, is meant to signal the core ethnographic insight in this book. That is that there is a um, a tension, a a social tension on the ground for people who have lived for over five decades uh, in a conflict zone, uh, contested, disputed territory between two national states, um, which is that there is this this longstanding tension between um, how people live with violence and that the relationship between becoming displaced or uh, taking refuge or being a refugee is uh, historically and experientially very closely related to debates and experiences of struggling to end the conflict and make it possible to no longer be displaced or to be kind of uh, to kind of have a, a set and secure home again. Um, so there's a there's a, a kind of a core. Um, ethnographic insight that this is intended um, uh, to point to. However, I also wanted to uh, point out um, and to signal one of the core um, theoretical arguments of the book, which is to think about um, these two practices which have um, a great body of um, Islamic scholarship attached to them, which is the practice of refuge-seeking um, or becoming a refugee, we can say, and, and the word for that is hijrat, um, to take up the practice of migration, protective migration, and the practice of struggle, and that's the practice of jihad, which sometimes takes the form of uh, 
arm struggle, but has several different manifestations with it. Now, both of these um, practices are known as bodily practices or sunnats there. They can be modeled on the practices of both the Holy Prophet Muhammad, uh, writings about uh, practices that he took up during his lifetime in various sacred Islamic texts, but also of the first community of, of Muslims. They're also both limit concepts, and this is this is very important. They're limit concepts, uh, unlike the other sunnats, they're limit concepts um, on violence, both taking refuge and engaging in struggle, um, articulate various ways that members of a Muslim community can create limits on the extent to which they have to experience violence before they can take action to prevent the bodily experience of violence on themselves and on their families. And one of these is, of course, moving away and, and setting up a protected household away from a site of violence. And the other is uh, struggling to end the conditions under which people are experiencing violence. And in various periods of Islamic history, there has been really prolific scholarship around both of these concepts in all of the traditional schools of Islamic law um, that talk about the conditions under which each practice can be taken, uh, the limits on their practice, when they might be obligatory, when they might be um, something that a community might have the ability to uh, think about or to negotiate. And so uh, by by talking about um, the practices of refuge seeking and um, uh, and struggle in relationship to a body of Islamic scholarship, part of what I'm able to actually show in this book is that while these concepts are incredibly are imbued with moral um, with with various forms of moral value, uh, they have great kind of cultural resonance. They have bodies of scholarship that follow them. They have histories in particular societies. There is no one-to-one correspondence between any body of writing or any particular kind of doctrinal uh, findings on either protective migration or struggle and what actual communities actually do. These terms are debated, they're negotiated, different peoples in, in, uh, in the same society come to different conclusions about them and that this brings us back to this kind of ethnographic tension uh, that, that this signals is that it's actually in order to understand them you actually have to understand them as a set of social debates and not as a simple correlation of Islam says and therefore Muslims do. And finally, the third um, kind of um, uh, issue that I mean this to signal, and until now I've been talking about the ethnographic reality on the ground in the Kashmir region and a broader kind of set of comparative issues in Muslim societies historically historically, in relationship to these incredibly important Islamic terminologies. But there's also another uh, kind of thing that I think that we as scholars and as public intellectuals and as people concerned with what's going on in the world today really need to engage with, which is a question of how we categorize and place value and recognition on the people who live in the conditions of contemporary armed conflict, which um, uh, increasingly uh, are not 
fought just between two armies who wear clear uniforms and who we can clearly categorize as being on one side or another or following a clear chain of command, but who live in contexts where violence uh, breaks out at different times, who have to negotiate it in order to live, uh, sometimes moving away, sometimes uh, making accommodations with fighters. And in those situations, um, while it is very... um, comforting to the researcher or to the activists to identify themselves as allying with victims. Uh, The distinction between victims and perpetrators is rarely clear-cut and, in fact, often misrepresents people's historical experiences on the the ground. So while on the one hand, um, I myself came to this project in part because I wanted to be a part of a discussion that had the potential to alleviate suffering. Uh, One of the things that I really had to struggle with, and I think that all of us have to struggle with in the world today, is to recognize that um, the, the people who suffer and those who cause suffering are very often the same people at different points in their lives, um, and that the distinction between victim and perpetrator is not in anywhere uh, clear-cut. And in fact, in many times, in order to survive conflict zones, the people living there have to um, and do move through these different kinds of experiences at different points in their lives. Um, Other people have written about this. Um, You know, we have the well-known kind of uh, study by Mahmoud Mondani, When Victims Become Killers. But this book is not asking us to think about the transition of somebody who's clearly identified as a victim and who experiences violence in their body as a form of suffering and somebody who's a perpetrator or becomes a perpetrator and brings suffering on the body of others. But it asks us to think about the myriad ways throughout their lives, throughout historical experiences embedded in social processes, that people are both victims and perpetrators at the same time. And that these are not just ideological positions um, or um, uh, kind of... um, uh, positions that people uh, put forward in order to put make claims on the legitimacy of their actions, but that these are actually inherently embodied experiences that we have to engage with and understand in order to come to a better understanding of why people come to the conclusion that uh, they need to act in particular ways at particular historical moments. In chapter one, uh of your book, uh, Between War and Refuge uh, in Jammu and Kashmir, you present a phenomenally rich account of the history of the category of Kashmiri refugee, and you convincingly show how the idea of the Kashmiri refugee as a political, legal, and socio-cultural identity, and here I'm quoting you, both underwrites and challenges the foundational narratives that legitimate the post-colonial nation-states of India and Pakistan, end of quote. Uh, Could you walk us through the thread of this very fascinating argument? Yes, thank you so much for asking that. Let me start by by just being very clear about one thing, and this this actually goes back to this this kind of, or, or will loop around to this question of you know how this the, the category both legitimates and challenges the core categories of the the um, Indian and Pakistani states, which is um, when people hear the word Kashmiri, uh, particularly in the contemporary context, there's often an assumption that this accords with um, a particular sub group of people who are actually I'm discussing in this book. 
So the word Kashmiri has uh, a kind of a, a social, ethnic, as well as uh, linguistic, cultural meaning. And in its most narrow form, uh, refers to those people from the Kashmir Valley, uh, the majority of which is currently on the Indian side of the line of control, and who are uh, Kashmiri language speakers. And that's a kind of a social, cultural identity. The people who I'm talking about in this book, um, uh, broadly speaking, um, uh, belong to multiple ethnic groups, belong to multiple linguistic groups, and in some ways should actually be pluralized, Kashmiri peoples, or the peoples of the former state of Jammu and Kashmir. Um, the, the, the category Kashmiri that ad, that is the adjective for refugee in this book actually refers to a political and legal identity that has its antecedents um, not in the post-colonial states of India and Pakistan, but in the colonial era state of um, the princely state of Jammu and Kashmir. Um, during the princely state era, um, the primary um, political movement which uh, developed in that period had to do with rights for the people of the state uh, and protections for them against actually the Maharaja's government. Um, and these, uh, these movements for rights primarily took the form of uh, advocating for rights over land recognition, in part because uh, some of the, the way that the Maharaja's government uh, uh, claimed the territory and the peoples was that it claimed the territory and all of the peoples uh, who live there and their right to rule over them. So one of the ways of creating limits on the sovereignty the complete sovereignty, including over life and death, of the peoples who live there were through movements to make secure claims on parcels of territory and the rights to use territory, um, which also, because of the way that this legally played out under the princely state, created some limitations on uh, what the princely state uh, and the Darbar could actually uh, do with the subjects. And a lot of this had to do with labor and taxation, for example. But by the time that you have the beginning of, a, of a, uh, a movement, a political, organized political parties and organized political movements in Jammu and Kashmir, um, multiple political parties from the socialist uh, parties to the uh, various different political parties that were developing in Jammu and uh, in Srinagar were actually articulating people's uh, inherent political rights in terms of this connection to land and to territory. And so the concept of the peoples of the state was actually a reference to those people who could claim either land ownership or usury rights um, in the princely states. And this bisected ethnic categories, it bisected lingu linguistic categories, and actually regional ones as well, although there were regions even within that that hadn't had the benefits of uh, a permanent land settlement, who in order to get rights that people in the other region had were actually advocating for a permanent settlement and, and for recognition of their land rights as well. So it was a very dominant mode of expressing uh, people's relationship to the territory. Um, so when the uh, uh, when the t uh, the states of India and Pakistan uh, came to the moment of independence in 1947, um, Jammu and Kashmir state as and this is a well oft repeated kind of part of the history. Jammu and Kashmir state was not part of that agreement, um, and. Uh, 
what is not often as well recognized, and this is what I'd like to emphasize here, is there was also no agreement on what would happen to the peoples of the states. In general, state subjects of um, princely states were excluded from uh, the agreements that were developing between the new Indian and Pakistan governments about how to repat, uh, to resettle people who were displaced in relationship to the partition. So in 1947, only those princely states that had acceded to either India or Pakistan received any provision for the people displaced related to partition violence to actually uh, get any form of compensation or resettlement. But those who hadn't, which included Jammu and Kashmir state, there was no agreement. So when people started being displaced in the Kashmir region uh, between 1947 and 1949, there were actually no provisions for them at all for either relief or for resettlement. But unlike the other princely states uh, who were incorporated into the resettlement uh, provisions of the partition after the inter-dominion agreements, by 1949, India and Pakistan had had already fought their first war uh, over the Kashmir region. And uh, the International Committee of the Red Cross, the UN was now involved in this, and everybody who had been active on the ground uh, recognized quote-unquote, Kashmiri refugees as being different from all other categories of partition refugees. That was from either from the other princely states or from parts of uh, British colonial India. And they held, quote-unquote, Kashmiri refugees, and that was the, the term in the English language documents. In the Urdu language documents, it was Mahajarine Jammu and Kashmir, so of the state of Jammu, uh, refugees from the state of Jammu and Kashmir. And they were held very, very specifically apart as being a very, very different category. Um, over the years, um, as the... Uh, the plebiscite that was originally discussed in 1949 did not take place. Um, these peoples who were recognized at both the international level in these documents, but more importantly at the level of India and Pakistan, um, advocated within their own regional centers, that is the AJK, the Azad Jammu and Kashmir government and the government of India's Jammu and Kashmir, for maintaining the recognition of their historical land rights, land and usury rights in the princely state as a way of maintaining their um, identification as people who had been displaced and who therefore maintained their their connection and their right to be recognized as uh, political subjects of these uh, of these states. So what this does in the context of India and Pakistan is, on the one hand, um, it you know these kind of categorizations participate in some of the ongoing cultural and political representations of conflict that both India and Pakistan tie um, to both the Kashmir conflict but also to their national identities. So uh, in relationship to um, um, in relationship uh, to India. Uh, you know, there's a long-standing discourse uh, within the Indian uh, political uh, Indian political thought that um, links the um, uh, India's claim over Jammu and Kashmir to its continuing ability to uh, represent uh, itself as a secular government that has a sizable Muslim uh, population and, in fact, a Muslim majority state. Um, and on the uh, Pakistan side, there's a cultural 
discourse acclaim over the Kashmir region that largely became more politically important after the separ- after 1971, after the separation of um, Bangladesh from Pakistan, um, that claims uh, that you know um, Kashmir shares a common and by this they mean Islamic cultural identity with Pakistan, and that there's a natural relationship between Jammu and Kashmir and Pakistan, and in this way that the Kashmir dispute between India and Pakistan is about the continuing integrity um, of the, and, and the, the reason diatra of uh, the establishment of the state of Pakistan. So those are some of the, the claims that are, you know, that kind of underlie some of these, these forms of state formation by the, in the dominant discourses of India and Pakistan. But the reality of the way that Kashmiri refugees have located themselves, maintained their, their kind of uh, connection to the former pre-division state of Jammu and Kashmir, um, as well as this continuing rights-bearing identity of Kashmiris, uh, uh, Kashmiris as the pe- all the peoples of the state who have these, these ongoing potential claims um, over land, um, actually also uh, challenges this in, in very fundamental ways. Um, one of them, for example, is, is that the line of control which forms a de facto border in many ways between India and Pakistan in this region is something that Kashmiri peoples uh, of very, very different political ilk um, have never accepted as representing a dividing line that has any meaning for Kashmiri peoples and crossing the line of control, breaking the line of control. There's various kinds of languages that are used to discuss this, but also movements to actually walk across it, um, peaceful movements, but to cross it with arms from militants, um, have a long history in this region going back uh, to the 1950s as as organized uh, political movements. And for Kashmiri peoples, again, of various different political parties, this isn't just just political parties that agree with each other, but of various um, different political parties, there is a wide agreement that the Kashmir, what is often called the Kashmir dispute, is actually not in any way a territorial dispute, but is a a historical um, conflict about the sovereign rights of the people and the ongoing sovereign rights of the people. So there's actually, while there's sometimes agreement between different political communities and the kind of dominant discourses of the post-colonial states, there's also this this long-running historical trend of of uh, challenge to those categories that leave open the possibility that something that once was might become again in the future, even if it doesn't exist now. As you've already uh, mentioned earlier, that one of the major themes of this book uh, is the interaction between the ideas of the categories of uh, hijra or hijrat and uh, jihad and those who participate uh, in hijrat and jihad, the muhajir and the Mujahid. So what are some of the major tensions and ambiguities involved in how these ideas, Hijrat, Jihad, Muhajir, um, Mujahid, um, and the relationship between these concepts, how they're imagined and contested by the people of Kashmir? So one of the, the things that was very interesting um, to me as, as I was working um, in communities of people who um, were historically displaced and who self-identified themselves as Mahajars, as uh, kind of Muslim refugees, as well as very specifically 
Mahajani Kashmir or Kashmiri refugees, because these words in these communities were, were often interlinked and kind of people would switch back and forth between them. One of the things that was very interesting to me was that those terminologies, uh, and I'll come to jihad in a moment or mujahid in a moment, but those terminologies um, had much less reference to um, doctrinal texts or to um, uh, bodies of Islamic scholarship than they did to people's own historical experiences, and sometimes in ways that actually undercut some of the expectations that one would have if you knew about the, the kind of doctrinal expectations of both, both how a, a hijrat would be carried out or how a, a jihad should be carried out. Um, so let me give you one example. Um, you know, one of the um, debates about um, both hijrat and jihad um, in the doctrinal literature has to do with questions of whether or not conditions of warfare or of unrest um, have to actually be declared in some kind of a formally, you know, a, a, a um, an authoritative religious context uh, for people to actually be recognized as being um, hajars, as refuge seekers, or as mujahideen. Um, I met a lot of people who were displaced um, in the context of 1947, the conflict in 1947, whose stories were about the other utter disorganization of the ways in which they were displaced. Um, during, during the time that uh, the Pakistani and Indian armies and, and members of, of uh, tribal Lashkars were, were incursing into the, into the valley and were fighting and people were displaced, uh, a lot of people from mountain villages did what people in mountain villages do when their villages are, are threatened. They kind of fled into the mountains. And when the fighting was done, some of them ended up on the same side of the line of control as their, um, as their villages and, and others did not. And so for those who did not and who suddenly found themselves with no longer with access to their traditional lands or their, their, their homes kind of became categorized as, as refugees, although it hadn't been an intentional movement. They hadn't kind of undergone the process of saying, we intend to uh, engage in this process of protective migration. And for them, their stories were always, always tied to the labor and the work of setting up a new home, of forming new families, of raising those families in ways that they could articulate as being imbibed with uh, Muslim values or Islamic values of being uh, of living a, a good life, um, and that their claims to being Mahajir, to being a refugee, were therefore tied not to the act of leaving or the act of seeking refuge, but to the way that they lived afterwards. Now, it was very striking because um, even in uh, later periods when these, uh, the line of control, its location was more set, when the conflict between India and Pakistan was more closely tied with national ideologies and to national claims over the Kashmir conflict, where uh, people's ideological relationships to this conflict was more set, um, I met 
people who were displaced in 65 and 71, very particularly during the armed conflict in the 1990s, um, who actually had prepared and intended um, to carry, to, to migrate or to carry out to Hijrat. And in fact, in the case of the 1990s, uh, there, there was uh, actually an entire uh, section of the village that had discussed at great length ahead of time whether or not they should uh, engage in the act of protective migration actually as a form of um, protest against uh, the violence of the Indian army uh, in their village, which was near the line of control. And yet I found that once they actually moved, the claims to the status of being a refugee or of having done hijrat were not actually articulated in terms of the discussions that they had had about uh, Islam, their understanding of Islam, about the status of this conflict, um, or their their intentions ahead of time or any preparations they'd done, but they were all about how they were actually living, what it meant to live in a particular way, the struggles to reestablish good Muslim moral ways of life, and very particularly to continue the Muslim family. So sacrifice um, in many of these communities was often talked about not in terms of um, uh, land or territory, but in terms of what you did for your children or the kinds of life that you could actually set up and, and prepare for them. So the, you know, their discussions were embedded in a set of social ongoing historical and social problems that were related to their own experiences discussed and inflected through the kinds of, of values that they understood to come to them from Islam being Muslims, but not limited in any way to a kind of a doctrinal debate about uh, whether or not they fit into a particular uh, category. It was very similar with watching um, and, and hearing about the process through which uh, people in these communities made the decision that they no longer could just be refugees, but actually now needed to engage in some form of struggle. And this, of course, refers to the concept of jihad. So again, a very, very highly regulated uh, concept within the Islamic legal traditions. In fact, um, so highly regulated that quite a few scholars of comparative religions have ref have uh, compared the jihad concept to the just war concept in the uh, Christian European Christian tradition. Um, but a lot of rules, a lot of regulations, uh, triggering points, questions about what kinds of authority can declare, what obligations this then places on members of the community. And those debates were almost entirely um, absent from the way that members of Kashmiri refugee communities um, discussed and debated both jihad itself, the Kashmir jihad, but also the process by which somebody could or couldn't uh, become a mujahid so that people would talk about, you know, whether um, it was sufficient anymore to, um, you know, kind of uh, engage with the, the reality of the ongoing conflict of, uh, in Kashmir purely from a level of supporting one's own family or working for the good of a local community. Was there a greater obligation that might be in place to actually engage in a direct struggle to change the broader political uh, conditions that had led this conflict to be continuing and ongoing? And it was quite striking that in some cases, 
um, people using this terminology came to conclusions about their obligation to become Mujahideen or to engage in a jihad um, that in sometimes were actually in direct, direct contradiction with um, the supposedly authoritative statements um, of, uh, religious, uh, of various religious uh, leaders. Now, among the most uh, fascinating and indeed the most enjoyable aspects of your uh, book uh, are these moments when you describe uh, particular moments of your fieldwork when you were confronted with certain pressing ethical and methodological dilemmas as an ethnographer because of the nature of your interviews. Uh, could you describe some of these moments and how did you try to address those dilemmas, and how do they actually inform your eventual research findings and argument, as you talk about in the book? Yeah. Um, thank you so much for asking that question. I, I love talking about these stories, and um, actually I'd like to share two with you, although I won't describe them in great detail, um, because they're, they're uh, both written about in great detail in the book, but I'll just summarize them quickly in order to talk about the ethical questions that they raised. Um, the first was actually the story of, uh, of a young man named Shafiq, um, and he he was actually one of the people I was just thinking of when I was talking about how sometimes people actually uh, come to the conclusion that they have to become a mujahid even against the authoritative statements of religious leaders or of their elders. Um, so Shafiq was a young man. He actually, his family was a was a Kashmiri refugee family. They had been resettled. Um, uh, they were from the Indian side of the line of control, but had been resettled on the Pakistan side of the line of control. And their village was actually very close to the line of control and had been in the um, late 90s under near constant bombardment by artillery and sniper uh, fire to the point that it really, you just couldn't live there anymore. And a lot of people had actually left these these line of control villages. I met Shafiq in a labor camp um, where he and his family um, had gone uh, in order to kind of have the wage labor and just to survive that they, that would replace their, um, uh, their agricultural, uh, products because they no longer had access to their village. And, um, the, I had been meeting with elders of his community and the religious leader and, and one of the elders of his family actually said, um, I would like to introduce you to this young man so that he can tell you about what it's actually like to live under conditions of firing, what that's like. And I said, that was great. And I, I came and I showed up for the interview. And um, Shafiq was not happy to see me in any way. He was, um, he was not pleased that he had been called to give this interview. He clearly didn't want to be there. And the first thing he said to me um, was, he said, well, you know, that's not what I want to talk to you about. Are you willing to hear about unspeakable things? And I said, yes, I'm unwilling. I'm willing to hear about unspeakable things. He wanted to tell me about the broader conditions of what was happening uh, in the Kashmir um, context to members of his extended family, some of whom were on the Indian side of the line of control. Um, And he also told me, you know, right away that um, actually he considered himself um, a mujahid, not a refugee, and that he wanted to tell me about these unspeakable things. So it was, uh, and then he he went on and he told me the story of, of um, uh, what he had seen in his village and of how his older brother had become a mujahid and had been killed several years earlier, how he would become a martyr. 
And then he told me the story of his attempt to join a militant organization, of the way in which members of his extended family had actually gone to the militant training camp, had forcefully removed him by telling the emir of the camp that he had lied and that he, in fact, did not have his family's uh, permission to join, um, and basically rehearsed an argument uh, between him and his parents in which his parents made the argument that because he was the last surviving son, his obligation to his community um, and to his family could only be carried out by uh, getting married, having having a child, supporting his parents in their old age, and that this was, he could not become a mujahid because to do so would be to basically abandon his family and his old parents, and that would take away any moral worth of struggling to protect his extended cousins, sisters, etc., from the... Um, uh, from from what they all saw as the excesses of an occupying army in Indian Kashmir. Um, and as I sat with him and listened to him, and, and also I, I met the family numerous times, I observed that he was never allowed to go to the bazaar on his own. He was always uh, accompanied by somebody else. Uh, it seemed to me that a tremendous amount of social work was being put into making sure that he didn't run away again and join another one of these uh, these militant organizations. Um, so, you know, there was, a, there was a kind of a tension that had started at the beginning of this interview because in anthropological research, we think that informed consent is very, very important. And if somebody doesn't want to talk to you or um, isn't interested in speaking with you, um, you really can't use that in your research. On the other hand, that kind of thinking, especially as it goes through um, uh, institutional review boards and human subjects, here in the United States often thinks and primarily thinks of consent as being a quality of individuals, something that individuals do. But in a society, in many societies in South Asia and many Muslim societies, certainly among Kashmiri refugees, consent is something that I always negotiated, not just with individuals, but actually with communities as a whole. And, um, you know, his, this young man's um, uncle, the religious leader of his community, had all negotiated that I would come and do this interview, and I couldn't just stop it because to do so would be to fail pu- very publicly to fail to recognize their authority over their community. So at the beginning of the interview, I had kind of thought, all right, well, I won't use this. But as the interview went on and on, and as I was invited back over time, it became clear to me that um, Shafiq actually did consent to a particular kind of engagement. And that engagement was that he he was using my presence um, and my interest in his and his family's story to rehearse an argument that had otherwise been shut down because he was a young man and didn't have authority in that society. And that argument was this ongoing argument he had with his parents and his uncles about whether his understanding of the of the current Kashmir conflict and his uh, led him to have an obligation to fight in a way that actually superseded his parents' claim on his ability 
ability to support them in his old age. And I watched this argument uh, unfold over time. And the way I actually use it in the book is to actually show how, uh, you know, how communities um, work with this cultural material, this question about what it means to be a refugee, what it means to be uh, someone who struggles, what it means to be a mujahid. How do they draw on their uh, these legitimizing tropes of their own cultural and religious heritage to make arguments and to try to persuade others? And under what conditions do some people succeed in their arguments and do others um, kind of not succeed? And how? what do they do? Uh, under those situations. Um, another story um, that was actually really important to me and um, in many ways is the very reason for the title of this book was a story I, I tell about a young man who I call um, Zahid. Zahid was uh, another person who I met um, who the, the interview was actually set up by his family. He was a person living, a young man living in a refugee village uh, that, that had, it, had been founded in, uh, in the early 1950s by people displaced in 1947. Um, but, uh, but he had come to the village uh, in uh, the early 1990s from the Indian side of the line and control and ended up there because uh, it was members of his maternal extended family who were settled in this village. Um, his, ref- his, his relatives said to me, they set up this interview and they said, we think you should meet a, a recent refugee, somebody who had came from the early 1990s and who isn't living right now in a refugee camp. We think you'll, you'll think this is interesting. And I, I did. And I came and he was very happy to see me. There was no question of consent, but no sooner had I sat down than he said, I'm not a refugee. I'm a Mujahid. Do you still want to hear my story? And I said, of course, uh, I was a little taken aback. It wasn't what I was expected, but I said, of course, tell me the story the way you would like to tell me. And he told me in great detail uh, the story of how he, how and why he had left his home, of how he had come to Azad Jammu and Kashmir, of the process of joining a militant organization, of how he had contributed to the Kashmir Jihad, um, again, in great detail. And uh, his story was... Um, uh, very colorful. It had a lot of details in it uh, that I knew to be true from other um, uh, young men that I had met in similar organizations. And um, at the end of the uh, at the end of the interview uh, on that particular day, uh, he needed to end it a little bit early because his wife was home alone. It was getting dark, so he went back home, and we agreed to meet again. So the second time that we met, um, he sat down, and it was. At that point, just him and I, the previous interview had been in front of his entire extended family, the women, everybody eating, drinking chai, listening to his story. And he sat down and he said, you know, I, I don't know what to say to you. Um, I lied. And I said, oh, <laughs> it was not what I was expecting. And he said, yeah, I, I lied. I'm, I'm not a Mujahid. I'm, I'm a refugee. Um, what story should I tell you? And I said, well, why don't you tell me the story that you would like to tell me? And so he told me a story that had all of the same event markers in it, but they were set in a very different narrative. They were a story about his longing for home, how much he missed his mother. They were his story about his desire to become um, uh, 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 an engineer. 
but his inability to do so and uh, because of the, the kind of the constraints, financial as well as political, on his status as a refugee within Pakistan and therefore how he'd become an electrician and his desire to get married and, and have children and raise a family and to be a good Muslim man and to set up the household that he had actually kind of abandoned back in, in his home village. And, um, you know, at the end of this of these two sets of interviews, I had, you know, two very, very different kinds of stories about what this young man's experience had been and about how he had lived his life and um, what he thought his place in the world was. And in the very beginning, I had kind of thought of these as, um, you know, I tried to understand what this story was about. And I was very concerned that he had been, that there was some kind of broader political pressure that had come to bear over this. Um, I wondered, for example, um, whether members of the militant organization that he claimed to be a part of thought he had revealed too much. Um, It's an interesting thing about the practice of jihad. Jihad is, uh, in Muslim societies, it's an honorable practice. Um, It has rules. It has to be carried out in particular ways. It's not something that one lies about. You, you, you follow the prescribed ways of being a warrior and, and, you know, it's a public thing that needs to be evaluated. But in the context of the current geopolitical community, in the context of what people see as an occupied situation of Kashmiris um, occupied by India, also potentially by Pakistan, um, there might be reasons to hide or dissuade what you're doing. So potentially lying about it, pretending not to be when one is, is something that kind of has entered into the imagination and the possibility. And I thought, well, maybe somebody in the organization that he claimed to be a part of thought he'd gone too far. On the other hand, maybe it wasn't the organization at all. Maybe um, members of the state agencies in Pakistan, Kashmir, um, were not pleased with the amount of information that he had told me. Again, maybe he had misjudged uh, what he what he he thought was okay to share with a researcher versus what somebody else thought. So I was very concerned about this material and how, whether I could use it in, in any particular way. Um, but I was also faced with the fact that he had told the first story in a very public social context in front of all of his family, um, who, if he had been lying, would have known that. And yet they were all sitting there kind of shaking their heads, nodding, saying, yes, 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 yes. But they had also told me that he was a refugee and not a Mujahid. And so I went back and forth thinking about, you know, how do, how do I make sense of this story? And in the end, um, what I think is more important to understand about Zayed's story um, is, is not its status as a life history, but the story of his lie. That is the relationship of the two stories together. Because I came to see it as, as actually reproducing and representing the tension within the Kashmiri refugee community, which is struggling to both preserve and also transform the dominant values of its own political culture. And I think this the story of his lie reveals how difficult it is for young men currently in the context of the current armed struggle to claim hijrat 
or to claim the status of being a good Muslim by being a refugee and a householder, and how much of a shift had actually come in um, in the context of the Kashmir Jihad, uh, how much pressure there was on young men to explain their relationship with this to the struggle and to their political community as one of active defense. And so I really see the struggle of his lie as also representing this kind of the ongoing value of um, refuge seeking as a political form, but the ways in which um, it is no longer as easily available to young men as a mode of talking about their honored relationship to continuing, their honorable relationship to continuing uh, conditions of, um, of violent conflict in the Kashmir Valley, as opposed to jihad, which is becoming the more dominant way that, that young men in the Kashmir conflict were actually talking about their commitment to bringing about new conditions of a better life for their people. So I want to move to an important uh, theme of the book, which is the discourse of human rights. And you show how this discourse is mobilized and appropriated by different actors and put to different kinds of uses. So what were some of the strategies through which militant organizations in Kashmir uh, have made appeals to the discourse of human rights as a way to legitimate violence? And how does your analysis uh, complicate dominant scholarly and even popular understandings of human rights as a category? Yeah. So this has become actually very striking and very important in the context of uh, the Kashmir conflict um, in the 1990s. And by the time, um, you know, I I first worked in in the Kashmir context or in the Kashmir prisons in the mid-1990s, but by the time I was actually doing much of my ethnographic fieldwork, it was very, very clear that various jihadist organizations, and I use that word very specifically, um, militant organizations uh, in, in the Kashmir region run the gamut and ran the gamut from secular nationalist organizations to Islamist organizations that um, uh, that, that had both political parties as well as um, militant wings, um, as well as by the late 1990 organizations um, that called themselves jihadist organizations that did not have clearly uh, defined a lied political party. So, so all of these groups were working on the ground um, by the late 1990s. And all of them, but particularly the jihadist organizations, had taken up the language of human rights as a legitimizing discourse for their um, carrying out of uh, violent political activities, which some of them, particularly the Chadist organizations, very clearly defined as a jihad. Now, this is quite striking because, um, you know, the while, you know, a number of um, modern um, scholars, Islamic scholars, have done a lot of work to talk about uh, the relationship between some of the values and ideas of a good society that exists in Islam and the concept of human rights. Generally speaking, there's a broad agreement that the ideas of rights or, or kind of responsibilities and duties that exist in Islam don't correspond in a very clear way with the concept of individual rights that we call uh, human rights that emerge in the post uh, uh, kind of World War II global global context. So that there there is not necessarily a clear reason why organizations like this would draw on that as a legitimizing discourse. But in by the late 1990s, 
numerous jihadist organizations were actually using either the words human rights um, or the same kinds of uh, kind of representations that human rights organizations did to legitimate what they were, um, to legitimate their struggle and to recruit members. Um, examples uh, that exist for this um, were quite strong in relationship to pr- uh, particularly the protection of women and the violation and the sexual violation of women. So that um, particularly some of the, the kind of the jihadist organizations uh, would refer to, um, you know, the need to protect women. You know, you, you have to protect the rights of the oppressed women and your, your, the oppressed sisters and daughters of Kashmir in their calls for training to jihadist organizations or to militant camps. Um, what's very interesting is, is that, um, or sorry, I find it very interesting, but I would also argue that these organizations actually didn't... Um, in some ways kind of initiate this discussion about the connection between human rights and jihad. This actually uh, emerged. It was, it was a kind of a social work, a connection that was forged by Kashmiri refugees in the early 1990s. Um, Kashmiris uh, on both sides of the line of control um, as, and as well as refugees who actually crossed it um, engaged in a tremendous amount of human rights documentation work in the early 1990s. They provided often at great risk to themselves because this kind of documentation was something that was not encouraged and was actively suppressed um, by Indian forces in Kashmir. At great risk to themselves, uh, they documented, they took pictures, they smuggled those pictures out to various human rights organizations. Um, In fact, the refugee camps on the Pakistan side of the line of control became one of the sites where this documentation was actually distributed. So refugees crossing would carry photographs at the time it was not digital. So they would carry photographs with them um, and then provide copies of these photographs to the various delegations, sometimes human rights, but also journalists in general, representatives from various embassies who would be deputed to go up to these refugee camps um, uh, in Azad, Jammu and Kashmir, meet with refugees as a way of quote unquote finding out what was happening. Uh, in the Indian Valley of Kashmir. So Kashmiris were actually incredibly dedicated to doing this work at tremendous risk to themselves. And it was because people believed in um, the ethics and the values that are uh, inherent in human rights. They believed in the kind of claims that are set up that there are certain sovereign rights that an individual, and they often thought of this in community terms as well, but communities have over their own bodies that limit the ability of states to violate. So the the kinds of human rights that were often talked about and documented were not those human rights that um, uh, are are often allowed to be suspended. So for example, uh, under conditions of emergency, you know, we recognize uh, rights to um, congregation or for people to get together. But, you know, international law also recognizes that states can place limits on how large a group of people can get together under a state of emergency. But there are no limits on, for example, torture or, um, um, uh, 
uh, uh, death without trial, execution without trial. So these were the kinds of kind of lim- sovereign limiting uh, articulations of rights that were most often documented um, by Kashmiris. And they were appealing to a set of international values and norms that they saw very much as applying to them. And, you know, the Kashmiris who engaged in this kind of work were very clearly not unaware of the human rights documentations on violations that had taken place in Latin America in the 19, uh, in the 1980s. I mean, they were, they were very aware of a broader kind of ways in which appeals to human rights had actually helped populations living under conditions of extreme violence. It was really over a course of several years in the uh, early to mid-1990s when this, these reports started coming back into Kashmiri communities with no clear action to actually stop the behaviors they were documenting, the people started looking for another way to think about protecting these rights. So, for example, um, human rights um, reports from Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch Asia, um, International Commission of Jurists, would actually come back to the refugee camps in Azad, Jammu, and Kashmir. They'd be broken up and uh, posted on these big pasteboards and people could actually go to these pasteboards and they could look at the pictures sometimes of themselves, sometimes of members of their families, sometimes that they had provided these photographs and they could see that they were in these reports, that the reports were documenting that these things had actually happened to their bodies. And yet, you know, so nobody was, was any more contesting that these things were actually happening. And yet they weren't seeing a kind of an interventionist policy that they had expected to see that would, that would prevent more of these kinds of uh, violations from occurring. And it was at that point that particularly refugees and Kashmiris from these camps who joined these organizations started bringing the language of human rights into the language of jihad, where people started saying... I have to fight and take up arms and fight a jihad because um, the human rights of my sisters or my cousins or the women of Kashmir are being violated. And so in some ways, the kind of the the argument about, you know, jihad as being one of the ways that... Um, it's possible to protect the sovereignty of Islamic space it became the sovereignty of Islamic bodies or of Muslim bodies and the fight, the fight for Muslim bodies on the terror uh, to protect Muslim bodies, um, you know, in, uh, uh, by these young refugee men, it became such a, um, effective and emotionally, um, uh, powerful, uh, claim that these militant organizations, particularly the jihadist organizations, took it up full force. So you start seeing it appear by like 1998, 1999 in their recruiting documents in uh, the uh, the kinds of pamphlets that are circulated referring to some of these same photographs that originally appeared in human rights documentation work now start appearing in some of these uh, jihadist recruitment pamphlets. And they very clearly rely, they don't, they don't always use the language of human rights per se, but they very clearly rely on the same representational practices. Um, and then the young men actually joining these organizations made the explicit link. This is jihad for human rights. Now, among the most uh, brilliant and poignant aspects of the book that I found is the way that you provide a thick description of the mechanics of jihad on the ground. And you show ways in which different jihadi actors straddle multiple political 
and institutional loyalties, for instance, belonging to different uh, militant organizations simultaneously. So could you talk a little about these intra-jihadi dynamics and tensions and how they inform the way uh, jihad is practiced, imagined, and put on display by jihadi actors and organizations? Yeah, you know, this was one of the things that most confounded me in the beginning of my research. You know, I had, I did primarily ethnographic work. I spent a lot of time with families. I lived with families. I went in and out of these camps. But I also, I did a lot of interviews as well. And, um, you know, one of the things when I was doing an interview with, um, you know, with somebody or a life history interview that was somebody who was very explicit with me about being a member of an organization is I I would try to, you know, understand, like, what political parties or political groups were they a member of before they joined this organization? And what was the route through which they were recruited? Or what was the route through which they actually kind of went physically to to join these, these different organizations? And it was one of the things that I found most confounding was that in doing these life histories with multiple people, that I would find that over the, the period of their life, one of two things. Either they would have been the member at different points in their career as um, as a militant activist or as a jihadist um, in multiple different organizations, some of which had diametrically opposed either political value, uh, political goals, or belonged to very, very different kind of sectarian connections that you would not expect one person to have been a member of both of these groups, and particularly not even serially, that maybe they joined one group and then a year later became a member of another, a year later a member of another. So that was something that, you know, was very, very difficult for me to understand in the beginning. Um, And it it really didn't strike home to me how important this was to understand in in the Kashmir context um, until I actually met with a number of the people who ran these organizations. And I came to understand that they didn't think those distinctions were necessarily important. So let me give you a few examples. Um, The Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front is one of those organizations um, that I mentioned earlier on that um, is not explicitly Islamic or Islamist in any way. It's a national secular organization um, claims to be fighting for uh, an independent Jammu and Kashmir. Um, the, by far, the majority of its members are actually Muslims themselves, but the ideology it espouses is not in any way Islamist or fundamentalist. The Hizbul Mujahideen is a militant organization that's very clearly connected to the Jamaat-e Islami in Kashmir. Um, the Jamaat-e Islami in Kashmir, does, it is an Islamist organization, it, a political party. It aspires to form an independent Jammu and Kashmir that would be also an Islamic state. And it has this uh, political wing. Now, these were the two biggest politi- uh, militant organizations in the early 19, in the very beginning of the, of the struggle in the early 1990s. And uh, they also fought a kind of a very bloody internecine war between themselves um, in 1992, 1993, um, which ended up in many ways with the JKLF largely uh, demobilizing its, its militant uh, sex, uh, section, although uh, politically the political party still has uh, uh, a lot of members and, and a great deal of, of authority um, in the context of the ongoing um, conflict in, in Jammu and Kashmir. 
But I tell you this information just to let you know that it would be very surprising to anybody who worked in the Kashmir conflict to understand that even after and even while this um, conflict between the two organizations was going on and that they agree on very, very little, that members of the JKLF might simply go off and join the Hezbollah Mujahideen. Then from there, we have a number of organizations um, and uh, they became more proliferate in the uh, mid to late 19, uh, 1990s that um, are uh, explicitly Islamic and jihadist, but don't have a clear political party associated with them, or more importantly for many of these people, not a clear Kashmiri political party that doesn't take a strong position on Kashmir, that maybe sees this jihad, the Kashmir jihad, as connected to broader Muslim struggles, but not particularly about the Kashmir problem itself. Um, and that goes against the ideology of both the Jammu Kashmir Liberation Front and the Hezbollah Mujahideen or the um, uh, members of those organizations. And so, again, it would be very surprising that members of either of those organizations would simply join one of these jihadist organizations while still claiming to espouse the ideological ideals of either the Hezbollah Mujahideen or of um, the JKLF. And yet I found that this was uh, universally true, that uh, in going through the the life histories of um, people who had been engaged in the struggle for a long period of time, that people moved through these organizations. They would be a member of one for a while, then they would fight with another, then they would fight with another. Um, sometimes, uh, not infrequently, the uh, move from one organization to another would be um, caused by some kind of broader political context um, for people who considered themselves largely independence thinkers, JKLF, but who fought with jihadist organizations. It was often because the JKLF couldn't uh, train or get people across the border anymore. Um, they no longer had those uh, political relationships that allowed them to push people across. And so um, they would go to a JKLF camp, they'd sign up, they'd sign their names, and then they'd be told, oh, you can get training in that camp over there or in the other camp over there. And they'd, they'd go off and they'd get signed up as members of those organizations as well. But they considered themselves still primarily independence fighters or liberation fighters, um, even though they were fighting with a jihadi organization. Uh, another reason um, that um, sometimes people would end up moving from one organization to another was because of conflicts within the organization. So um, it was not uncommon uh, in these organizations where, in fact, recruitment was often self-recruitment and not coming out of very ideologically uh, doctrinally regulated places like madrasas, that once people got to the camps... Um, while they might all agree that they're there to fight the Kashmir Jihad, that their understanding of what Jihad was, was so different aesthetically and religiously that they had trouble getting along with each other. And this would often lead to kind of factions developing within these training camps that would eventually result in kind of an organization breaking up and one part of the organization renaming itself and then technically becoming another organization. So those kind of, uh, those kind of histories were a part of the life history of every Mujahid, Kashmiri Mujahid who I spoke with who had been involved in this struggle for any amount of time. And I discovered once I got to know some of the people who actually ran some of these camps that um, the distinction, for at least for the Kashmiris who were involved in running these camps, um, wasn't particularly important to them either. So, for example, there was one... Um, 
JKLF um, um, commander who had run one of the training camps uh, for a number of years, who talked about, you know, he had a book of members and particularly of martyrs and people who had died in the, in the struggle. And most of the martyrs who he had documented as members of the JKLF actually hadn't died fighting for the JKLF at all. They died fighting for other organizations, many of which were um, groups that if you were doing a purely kind of political discursive analysis that you would categorize as radical fundamentalists or hottest organizations. So, you know, making uh, the assumption that the um, goals or ideology or um, the kind of practices that are espoused and represented at the top level of any one of these organizations by like their uh, official spokespeople um, actually explain the motivations of people on the ground, either in becoming involved or staying involved, would actually be a fundamental error in understanding the, you know, the kind of the sociology of how a jihad is actually carried out. So in the final chapter of the book, uh, you brilliantly and convincingly show that becoming a mujahid in Kashmiri refugee communities is founded on what you call a paradox uh, that involves a complicated interaction of a human discernment, desire, family, sexu- sexuality, and martyrdom. So can you explain what that paradox is and some of the ways it plays out in the lives of Mujahids? Yeah. So, you know, I, I think when I was talking about, for example, um, the story of, um, of Shahid um, or some of these young men who've joined these organizations, one of the things that, you know, I've kind of talked about a little bit is how important their own understanding of this conflict was as a, as a part of their reasoning and thinking about why it was important to become a Mujahid or, or how they should, uh, what they should actually do um, uh, in fighting a jihad. And uh, this, this ability to kind of evaluate a situation and then to decide, you know, how one should react in relationship to it uh, created a tremendous uh, moral paradox in, in thinking about what the status of the Kashmir Jihad actually is. Um, because in a kind of a, a popular uh, psychology or kind of regional psychology, which draws greatly on um, broader Islamic understandings and representations of the self. There's this kind of thinking about the self as having these two poles. You have the, the poles of, of something you might call the desires or the, uh, you know, the kind of the, um, the impetus, the wants, and then you have the desire of the in, in intellect or wisdom. And these are, the, these are represented by, by two words, which are very common in, in, throughout Muslim societies, which are the nafs, the soul or the, or the wants and desires and uh, akal, which is intellectual capacity, um, wisdom. And people, all people in, in the Kashmir context, uh, both men and women, it's kind of broadly thought of or capable of cultivating um, this capacity for discernment or, or intellect or wisdom. But it's something that has to be cultivated. And generally speaking, in uh, Kashmiri refugee communities, people think about this as being something that one cannot cultivate in these kind of um, purely modernist sense of, you know, education or uh, training. And that includes classical Islamic training. One cannot develop uckle just by, for example, sitting in the mosque or reading the uh, Quran Sharif or um, kind of uh, being told what to do by, by a leader. The way one can actually develop this 
this capacity is with a struggle with the self. And this is actually called the jihad nafs, the, the struggle with the self. And it's the struggle to um, bring those bodily desires, those, all those human things that we all have as human beings uh, under some kind of control and more importantly, into service for the community. And the first point of interaction with service and community in Kashmiri refugee thinking is the family. Um, and it's the family, I think, in part because it's that, it's that place where all of the kind of the, the, the paradigmatic representations of the power of the nafs, of desires of the self, the sexual desires for example, for the other um, service. So marrying the person that your parents think is a good match for you and will fit into the family is a great example of how one uh, harnesses desire in a way that's socially acceptable and also allows the development of one's moral capacity, that you put all of those human uh, pulls and desires into service for others in a socially acceptable way. So paradigmatically, um, one of the, the, the way that um, young Kashmiri Muslim men are come to a point where they are recognized for having um, the capacity of discernment that would be so important in analyzing a political situation and deciding whether it rose to the status of requiring someone of, of acting, of, of being uh, requiring a jihad or for somebody to become a jihadist, uh, would, would require them to have first kind of undergone this very personal struggle to become a full social human being in the context of the family. But this puts you right back into the conflict that so many young men experienced, um, which is that, you know, can you necessarily be, you know, an honorable jihadist if what you're doing is abandoning your family? If if part of how you develop the full discernment to be a a kind of a full adult and properly understand the world and and how much humans need to to struggle over their base emotions, including like the hotness of of, uh, how how upset you might feel if you saw the picture of human rights uh, um, abuses of, of a torture victim, or um, to know that your desire to fight is not just the desire for revenge for the person who killed or the army that, that, that killed your cousin, but is actually a kind of a moderate, uh, full understanding of your obligation as, uh, as a Muslim to engage in a, in a righteous struggle. How can you do that? if you haven't first undertaken a full struggle with yourself um, and, and become a full social uh, human being. So for young men who um, are not fully embedded within this family structure, having it married, for example, um, are uh, claiming that they have fully undertaken a jihad enough and are capable, have the uckle that they need in order to come to decisions about the status of this, of this armed conflict. Is it or is it not a jihad? Am I personally uh, required to take up arms myself or is there another form of struggle uh, like consciousness raising that I should be engaged in instead? Um, without being fully embedded within the family structure, um, it's very difficult to stabilize and legitimize those claims. But once you are, you know, abandoning one's wife, abandoning one's child, um, not taking care of one's elderly parents 
could also be things uh, that would undermine one's ability to claim that one is really a truly and righteous um, jihadist. So for these young men in refugee communities for, uh, to, to engage in struggle on various levels, it's never a question of how do you take up arms, how do you get training, um, when do you cross the border, what acts of violence do you uh, consent to participate in or do you organize it's always a question of how do you actually live with that status um, of all of the times when one is not fighting how does one um, engage and and kind of live in the world as somebody who is a living mujahid and not um, somebody who has died or kind of given one's life for the cause uh, and entered into martyrdom. So the question of, of how to live as a Mujahid is a much more important question than how to die as one. So as we're approaching uh, the end of our uh, conversation, uh, Kabiri, could you tell us a bit about what you're working on uh, these days and what are some of the uh, works that we can uh, expect to read from you and learn from you in the coming uh, months and years? Yeah. Um, so I'm actually working on a project that um, I've, I've almost completed the uh, ethnographic research for. I actually started it in 2005, well before this book came out. Um, the project is actually um, uh, an examination of um, how uh, the people of uh, Azad, Jammu, and Kashmir reconstructed their political and their social world after the devastating earthquake of 2005 that really just kind of took down the city of Muzaffarabad, killed thousands of people, and, and decimated a lot of the areas here on the border that I've actually talked about in this book. Um, I was in Muzaffarabad. I went to Muzaffarabad right after the earthquake. I was there, but actually, I was there a couple of weeks before, and then I went back right afterwards. And I went primarily to mourn with people. A lot of the people who I talk about in this book, um, some of them or their family members died in that earthquake. And um, I went to pay my respects and to see people that were impacted and displaced by this natural disaster. And uh, I was really fascinated to learn that immediately after the earthquake, many of these militant organizations and jihadist organizations and the people, some of the people I've talked about in this book, um, demobilized themselves. This wasn't an order that was given from the center. They just demobilized themselves and they reinvented themselves as uh, humanitarian workers. And the, the work that they engaged in, they called humanitarian jihad. So they were working side by side, uh, the international uh, humanitarian workers and the Pakistan army and members of various national armies who came to to give relief in the context of this earthquake. And uh, many of them didn't remobilize. So I went back numerous times over the, the following years, and uh, many of these uh, young men still considered themselves Mujahideen. They still talked about them themselves as Mujahideen, but they talked of themselves as doing humanitarian or social jihad. And they first worked in refugee camps or in uh, medical camps, um, and then they became very involved in the work of social uh, rehabilitation and social reconstruction, some of them going on to work in NGOs, others in the new Human Welfare Department, uh, the Rehabilitation Department of the AJK government. Um, and over the years, having established this kind of history of um, political, social, um, governmental, as well as volunteer work, um, quite a few of them ended up in various international organizations, some working overseas um, uh, in these kind of big in, uh, international humanitarian organizations. So 
this was how I kind of got interested in the question of what is the process of rebuilding the the social and political world of Azad Kashmir look like? I got interested because of so many of these um, Mujahideen who continued to identify as Mujahideen, but who are, were doing works that other people would talk about as humanitarian work. Um, and, and it became really, for, for many people, a way out of the armed struggle, which some people had become uh, disillusioned with as a way of actually resolving the conflict by the mid 2000s. Um, so the project that I'm working on now tells that story, um, and but it's become much wider. Um, uh, youth politics has been utterly revitalized in Azad Jammu and Kashmir um, over the years, the the ten years uh, since this earthquake took place. The um, the huge amount of international money, uh, humanitarian and NGO money that came into Azad Jammu and Kashmir, a region which had been largely um, uh, avoided um, by these organizations in part because they didn't want to get involved in the Kashmir conflict, but they saw this as a natural disaster and as, a, and, and as something that wasn't inherently political. So that a lot of these organizations, big international organizations came in, they brought a huge amount of money and, uh, and they hired a lot of Kashmiri uh, university students um, young people who have gone on. Uh, some of them are now becoming social scientists themselves, became very interested in questions of political and social change, um, of social development. Um, others work for a number of these organizations, both overseas, but also more broadly in Pakistan and places like the headquarters in Islamabad. And it's really led to kind of an intellectual revitalization of debates about um, what conflict has meant historically for Azad Jammu and Kashmir society and uh, is bringing in uh, new young kind of new voices about how people can actually contribute to the development of this of of this area and to the society and so the the manuscript that I'm currently working on tells the story of of the kind of the multiple possibilities and of all of the different um, actors who kind of stepped in to reimagine what Azad Jammu and Kashmir's relationship is to other parts of Kashmir what it means to be Kashmiri in this kind of moment where um I think on a certain level, there is less belief that India and Pakistan, India or Pakistan will ever um, kind of willingly step back um, and allow broad self-rule in the area. Um, and new kinds of ways of thinking about what the relationship is between Azad, Jammu and Kashmir and Pakistan. And uh, it's it's been really interesting to meet and to hear a lot of these um, young voices and to look at the ways that people really took up the opportunity of um, a, a tremendous amount of international attention that they'd always wanted in this region and how they used that attention um, to create new spaces for political activism that had been closed, particularly within the, the Pakistan context. Body of Victim, Body of Warrior, Refugee Families in the Making of Kashmiri Jihadists by Kabiri Robinson, published by the University of California Press in 2013. Thank you so much, Kabiri, for your time and uh, for such a theoretically exciting and rich book and for this conversation. I really learned a lot reading this book and uh, really enjoyed this conversation. So thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sharali. I really appreciate your time and your enthusiasm. So this was my conversation with Professor Kabiri Robinson on her brilliant new book. 
body of victim body of warrior refugee families and the making of kashmiri jihadists thank you so much for listening and please also join us next time for another new and fresh episode of new books in islamic studies until then stay well and thank you for listening